Hello there and welcome to another episode of Ruben's podcast. A show where I speak to people about their lives over the last decade and the lessons they've learned along the way. On today's show I'm speaking with Kevin. I met Kevin back in university in 2011 and he was in the same department as I was. After graduating, he went to work in the world of finance and lived the high-flying banker life before realizing he wanted to do more than merely just increase profits and shareholder returns. He decided then to enter impact investing and eventually landed up as employee number 3 at a fintech startup. The startup didn't become the unicorn he had hoped for, but the experience taught him so much about what it takes to build a company and we deep dive into that and much more in our conversation today. But before we start, some quick housekeeping. We're on Instagram at Ruben's Podcast. Follow us there to stay up to date with what's happening on the show and tell me how we can do better. My goal is to hear more from you the listener and incorporate your feedback and suggestions to make this the one podcast you don't want to miss. Okay, with that, let's get into the conversation. We are live. Kevin, thanks a ton for for doing this. How are you? I've been doing well, Ruben. Thank you for having me and uh, been a fan fan of the podcast and uh, you know look forward to speaking with you, man. Yeah. Where where <laughs> yes, it has been. We've been discussing. It's been like seven years. Seven, eight years now, right? That's I mean, crazy. You guys left one year before we did, so it's yeah, yeah technically been about eight years. So I am down uh, home, back home in Coimbatore. So I've been uh, here since April. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, enjoying a little bit of downtime before I head to business school next month. Okay. Uh, and just winding down, doing simple things in life like catching up with parents and uh, yeah. uh, learning some life skills like cooking and how to chop vegetables <laughs> uh, for a change. And uh, and yeah, like uh, you know, um, catching up on some TV time and movies, etc. Nice. So so it's been it's been just chilling for a month and a half before the grind starts. Chopping vegetables, learning how to cook, and watching TV. The last seven years yeah. don't seem to be very chill for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so these things should have happened by now, right? So uh, the fact that I didn't get to do all of this is probably representative of my life. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so yeah, and, that's and, what I've been doing, man. And you mentioned you were you were home after like a while. Ah, uh, yeah. So I mean, I I worked at the startup role was in Chennai, so Chennai and Coimbatore are very close by uh, ah, in terms right. of distance. So I used to travel down once a, once in a while, but mm. the, mostly I was in Chennai. So this mm. is like the proper. you know extended time i've got at home right in got the it. sense that i've not been able to do this for many years together and you know parents are kind of happy to have me mm-hmm. kind of feels weird to be uh, sleeping in my uh, childhood bed though you know mm-hmm. like you know after so many years just coming yeah. back and, and being in that room where i used to do my boards etc just just <laughs> that it, uh, sort of uh, takes me back some time but uh, that's yeah. been interesting yeah D- during the pandemic i've heard a lot of people are moving back home and they've had mixed mixed reactions your parents have had mixed reactions towards it how how has it been for you yeah. has it been all all hunky dory and and, and nice or <laughs> no i get that so i think uh, first when the pandemic sort of just came in and uh, we were had no clue but just no option to just go back home yeah uh, i just spent about 2 3 months at home then so i didn't have an extended stay then so mm. by the time parents got bored of me i i think i'd gone back to chennai okay. uh, so so i think uh, that helped uh, but Uh, but yeah i think uh, you know it, it, it's it's sort of uh, this weird journey for all of us suddenly we you know back home yeah. uh, in 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 places we didn't expect to find ourselves to be in especially having you know lived across cities and all yeah, of right. that right uh, so it's a surreal feeling in many ways but uh, 
but Coimbatore is a nice, happy city. So I, I generally like the vibe here. So it's so not complaining for the moment at least. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And and you said you're going to start business school in next month. And that where is that going to be? Um, yes. Uh, so I I'm doing it at Indian School of Business, ISB Hyderabad. Ah, got it. But the first couple of months are going to be virtual, right? Ah, okay, so okay, okay. you know because of uh, you know vaccinations, you know, whatever COVID is still. Uh, very much prevalent, so we're going to do it mm. virtually, and then we do ten months on campus. It's kind it. of excited to you know to be back in the classroom and then sort of uh, uh, get some structured learning experience, right? Because yeah. at startups, everything is super unstructured, <laughs> yeah. right? Like you're just doing everything by hunch, right? You just yeah, uh, you don't know what you're solving for at times. But uh, uh, so I'm just happy to be back in that classroom environment after many years. Yeah. So excited for that, and it's it's a one year program, so I'll be in mm. and out fast. So 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 I specifically chose one year programs. I couldn't yeah. do two years. Yeah. So. Oh, why why do you say you couldn't do two years? Because uh no, I think for me the MBA was not going to be this process of self discovery, right? It was not mm. like I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like Got a lot it. of people go into the MBA just being very vanilla about what they want. For yeah. me, it was like I've been in fintech for four years, and I want to get to the next level in fintech, right? It, it right. was not about me. Um, just going back into consulting or mm. banking, so I didn't want to use it, use that as an option to do that. So, so one year was more than sufficient to sort of, you know, build that network, meet Got interesting it. people, and and sort of, uh, uh, I'm staying in India, which is, uh, you know, mixed bag, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. So we'll touch upon like business school maybe towards the, the second half of the conversation. Sure. But uh, yeah, as as a quick introduction to Kevin. Uh, you're kind enough to send me two voice notes uh, about what you've been up to over the last decade and uh, things we can speak about. But as a quick, quick rundown, um, Kevin and I sort of met each other back in 2011 uh, in Stephens. Uh, Kevin started economics; he was a year junior to me. And um, after university, you joined Citibank uh, in their capital debt markets division, which. If you want to know more about that, go listen to Satyaki's podcast. <laughs> I never would imagine you would do exactly the same as Satyaki is doing, yeah. but so it is. Uh, you did that for a few years, um, then decided um, that for you, it, like financial services and just, you know, fintech was much more than, you know, as you said, maximizing profits, a shareholder return. Uh, and you decided to go into impact investing, did that for a few years. Um, the startup bug, as they said, with you, uh, you eventually ended up in uh, early stage startup employee number three uh, in a P2P uh, consumer lending company out of, out of India. I did that for a good four years, um, hit burnout, and you've been chilling ever since. And uh, now I'm going to business school. So I, like, there are so many sort of commonalities with, with what you've done, especially around the startup phase and that, that experience. And for me, and I'm very curious uh, to know more. But um, I think a good place to start, Kevin, is talking about banker life. Like you, I, I would have never imagined you being one of those high flying, you know, bankers with JP Chase cards. But uh, <laughs> tell me about uh, your, your life in, in investment banking. Yeah. You said that you lived a pretty, you know, chill banker life in Bombay when you were at City. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about talk to me about that. No, so I think, uh, you know, the, the City was, uh, was wonderful in many ways. But I also think the way I got to the City was not very direct. Like you said, I, it was not like the jobs I was anyways aspiring to be in or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so when final year in college happened, I was still fairly clueless in terms of what I was wanting to do. There was no fixed plan A, right? In, in my yeah. mind at that point in time. So I liked economics, but I wasn't sure if I liked it enough to do a master's. Mm. Uh, then there was, I was also like, you know, interested in politics, current affairs and stuff like that. But 
you know, there was no structured uh, path to sort of um, go along that line. Yeah. And then plan C was obviously to to fight it out in the placement scene, figure out where I'd uh, land up. And yeah. uh, and sure, I gave the placement scene a fair shot and then sort of ended up at Citigroup for a long time, just uh, figuring out what I wanted to do in final year. And then uh, by the time, you know, these, these, these placement scenes sort of started yeah. happening, I was I was already too late, I felt. And thankfully, Citigroup came very late in the year when when half of the class had already got those jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so my my competition wasn't like very tight, right? Yeah. So it was fairly easy, right, to sort of get in. But but that happened, you know, happy to be, I mean, good that they took me in. And uh, But I always, you know, sort of had this real world hustle to me. Like, I, I felt that the, the going back to the real world made a lot of sense then because, uh, you know, I, I was part of, you know, the clubs and activities seen in college and I would secure these last minute sponsorships and, you know, just was managing large teams and stuff like that. Yeah. So I always had this, this real world inkling, sort of get out of college, you know, build a life for yourself, etc. So, so I thought of, uh, uh, I thought Citigroup in hindsight made a lot of sense. So I went, mm. uh, joined Citibank in the capital markets division, yeah. uh, which is, uh, as your previous podcast with Satyaki would uh, entail, is, is just about very large loans given to very large corporations. Yeah, I, I'm glad how we're dumbing down the financial jargon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all, most of financial is just fancy, glitzy stuff for very commonsensical <laughs> terms, right? So, uh, so I think um, I did, uh, uh, you know, spend a year and a half at the desk. It was a very mm-hmm. niche team. I was the only 20-year-old in that team because my boss was like 45, 50 and he wow. spent 25 years at the bank. And uh, he almost treated me like a son, right? Like they'd never hired an undergrad and maybe they were just doing it for the first time. They were just going to undergrad circles for the first time. So they never had an undergrad at the desk. Yeah. Right. And I was still, you know, struggling with Excel sheets, yeah. modeling. I had no clue, man. Like I had not been in the finance circle at yeah. all in college. Right. So, so when I got in, got this role, it was basically learning from scratch and learning on the job mm. and doing that when you had these big, massive deals to execute was was surely you know adrenaline stuff yeah. right it was surely uh, high action yeah uh, but i somehow got hold of that environment and uh, did fairly well at the desk we we did some very good work uh, and then thankfully a lot of folks from college were in bombay at that point of time right mm-hmm. they were also living the chill banker life which i was yeah. so so you had uh, very good friends from college living there so bombay also didn't feel like a different city it mm-hmm. was almost like a lot of the delhi crowd was either working with me or they were yeah. very living close by. Yeah. So it was, was an interesting environment to be in. You know, the, the good part about the role was, you know, it was also involved a little bit of salesmanship mm. because when you do these large loans to these corporations, Citibank is not the only bank lending. Yeah. Right. They bring together a group of banks. Yeah. Right. And then together they lend to this one large entity. So, so, you know, I, I became better at my Excel game yeah. and, uh, you know, just became, a, a much better conversationalist maybe right yeah. during that process but but i always felt that that city stint would would not last beyond a couple of years right and, mm. and that's that's pro- probably segueing into you know why i moved into the yeah. the the impact investing piece right i'd always been fairly idealistic of the world right even in final year when when we were uh, in college uh, i i always felt the world had to be fair just and equal for everyone mm. but i did not know how to Channelize that energy, right? Yeah. I do not know financial services and industry could also be a place where you could sort of be and sort of drive 
uh, positive impact, right? Yeah. And then that's when, you know, you know, at, at the bank, we were doing some work around microfinance lending. Mm-hmm. I clearly remember. And, and the bank literally would write these large checks to uh, microfinance lenders in Karnataka, yeah. Tamil Nadu, etc. Really, as just business as usual, right? For them, mm-hmm. it was not about the impact or anything. It was just, you know, they would lend to these microfinance companies and these microfinance companies would pay them back at 11 or 12% return. And that's yeah. all they, they cared about. So I got involved in reading about microfinance and, and basically the idea that, you know, capital can actually be used as an instrument of change, right? Like yeah. you can actually, a small loan can, can fundamentally transform lives, right? Yeah. So, so I think that stuck with me a lot. And uh, while I still wanted to stay in finance, I didn't want to suddenly jump and do something yeah. weird. So I, I, that's when I discovered impact investing, where you oh. could stay within the sphere of finance and investing. Mm-hmm. But you could also be uh, working with these startups, which were actually making, uh, solving for uh, business right. problems in, in, in spaces, which traditional venture capital wouldn't go and invest in, yeah. right? Like affordable housing, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So, can you, can you explain to me the difference? Like I've heard this term used a lot called impact investing. How do you define impact investing? Like, and from a very technical sense, like I know it's sort of capital being allocated to you know, causes like affordable housing to education to things like that. But from an investor's point of view, when you say I'm, I'm in impact investing, are you okay with a lesser rate of return? Or how, how is that different from venture capital or normal investing? So I think impact investing broadly is venture capital with a heart and a soul, right? So, so it, it retains the, the, the whole profit motive of venture capital, which is to chase returns. Yeah. But you're chasing returns in markets, which are often thought of as underserved or not very evident for investing in, right? For instance, yeah. uh, something like clean energy or uh, financial inclusion. Yeah. These are noble causes, you know, you can, you can, you need to surely focus on, but, yeah. but traditional venture capital has always thought of these spaces as uninvestable spaces because mm. they've said customer segments here are so poor that they yeah. possibly will not be able to afford the purchasing power, uh, which, which is significant for them to, create the multiplier or the valuation they need to make an exit. Right. So, and, and do, so, and do impact investors see that differently or they're like, no, no, we don't really care about if they can pay or not, or we have a longer time horizon. How do y'all see the same customer set differently? No, sure. They, they, they surely have a, they look at themselves as patient capital, right? So they, hmm. they want to stay invested for a longer period of time, but most of the really solid, good impact investors don't compromise on IRR or returns at all. Right. They, they want, uh, this to be profit with purpose. So profit is very much part of that equation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is what I think uh, was very interesting for me because uh, I had this notion that impact investing was initially just about philanthropy in some sense, Yeah. but it's totally not about that. Mm. You have people with hard finance skill sets being in the industry. So the way they think about a startup is in broadly similar terms with which you think of any traditional startup, right? So, so you don't go and think of a, uh, of a company in the space of affordable finance, affordable, uh, housing finance, right? You don't think of it very differently from a HDFC bank, et cetera. You're still monitoring the same metrics just that the customer segment being served is very, very different, right? You're totally looking at the bottom of the pyramid, which is, you know, which was a big change for me. So by, by the sense of that, I would argue that impact investing is harder than standard investing because not only are you chasing a return, but you're also trying to serve a segment which nobody else is touching. Is that fair or do you think 
impact investing is easier than venture capital i think i think it's surely hard work because you're not just uh, having to wait for a longer period of time to make those exits exits secondly the number of deals you can possibly do ruben are also very limited mm. right it's not like traditional venture capital where you can do 100 deals a month or a year yeah. and even if 5 or 10 work out mm. right which is typically the bet any vc places Correct. you're going to come out of your fund with a 5x 10x exit yeah right uh, whereas in impact investing the deal flow isn't as strong so you're going to yeah. find very limited number of businesses to invest in mm. and you'd better be sure when you put your money in a business right that this is surely going to work so you don't yeah. have these vanity bets being placed right so you you surely know what you're doing yeah. and a lot of the impact investors who are running these funds have actually spent a lot of time with the customer segments which means they go into these you know rural households mm. they travel and live eat with these customers to understand their aspirations etc yeah. so so the fund i was working in primarily built all of its theses around the spaces it should invest in based on customer feedback or mm. community feedback right? right so that meant they were far successful than a lot of the others Got but it. it surely you know much more difficult than traditional venture capital but Got it's it. also a little bit more rewarding if you think of the social element mm. of- so you started out at city bank uh, with this idealistic view uh did capital debt markets is a 20 year old <laughs> working with a 45 year old yeah, 22 year old H- how how was that like th- like what was your conversation with your boss like wasn't your boss being like what have i done like why do i have a 22 year old at my desk and he would have been probably yeah. very very experienced but like explain to me and i think for you it would have been a very very enriching and an experience to learn a lot but like talk to me about that relationship with your boss so my boss was as i said touching 50 and uh uh for him uh he did not ask for an undergrad he wanted an mba mm. right to be part of the desk yeah. and i just somehow rolled through the process and and you know it, it, it the interviews went okay and and he sort of seemed to like me so he took me in and and in city bank like in any large mnc or bank your fate is ultimately determined the quality of work you get is ultimately determined by the the manager you work with right and and especially when it's a three or four member team and they're doing five six deals a year they had to involve me at some point in in all the the complex work which was happening it i yeah. could just not be the spectator and you know let them do all the good work because there was just too much going around at that yeah. point in time and uh, so for the longest time i think uh, you know uh, at least for the first 2 3 months they made sure i i was able to talk like a banker right i was mm. still talking like some random uh, du kid right like you know <laughs> what does that mean was just, what, what does it mean no, talking like a banker uh, no I, i i would i would not say stuff like irr i would say sir you will make more money right <laughs> if you if you do this right so so stuff like that right i, I did not know what a pnl statement looked like mm. right i would say you know you know this excel sheet with tables etc so so they wanted me to become very polished very quickly mm. but it was they gave me that space to sort of discover whether i even like this or not yeah. and thankfully i i i picked this up quite fast and 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 uh, then got really good work and i couldn't b- believe it robin i mean we were sitting with cfos of some of the largest companies and i was at the end of the year or 6 or 8 months into the journey i was ex- explaining their pnl to them wow. and for me that was super surreal i was sitting with i think uh, the cfo of air india or someone and and he was basically sort of listening to me explain how he should be structuring his corporate debt etc and 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 for me like flashback to a year back it was just so so weird that i was doing this but yeah but, uh, 
I, I wonder. I, I wonder what advice you gave them because I don't think Aaron did it very well <laughs> after that. <laughs> yeah. What, what was that conversation like? Like, how, what were you guys talking with the CFO of Air India? Like, what were you telling him that he didn't already know? No. So I think Air India surely was an easier conversation because Air India, at some level, is backed by the government of India. Yeah. So we did not have to worry too much about their uh, uh, company uh, projections, etc. Because ultimately, even if they screwed up, we would. get yes. the money from the government of india so Correct. so you know air india was again a very government like client right so i mean with the psu so yeah. so uh, they work very differently man like i remember my first day at air india's office they made sure i was fed lunch breakfast etc and there was no work basically there was just no work done for like 5 6 days i just had yeah. to keep myself in their know how yeah. and eventually they warmed up to me etc but but that's how these these guys operate like though he was a cfo he would just like randomly be chilling around and uh, he would call me suddenly in the middle of the day and say come over to the office and i was in bkc and uh, their office was very close by yeah. so we could just take a taxi down etc but but uh, that was an, i mean so mo- most of the deals i worked with were directly with cfos because those guys control you know right. th- the kind of debt they want to raise etc like you you had this experiences of talking to this, this all of these high flying you know cfos like what did you learn about like how cfos think or how do they look at their companies Uh, tell me like one like a super interesting experience that like or something you took away from you know talking to all of these high flying guys sure so i think we did uh, a couple of uh, interesting deals another one was with the the cfo of uh, jeep india jeep is that car brand yeah. which, which launched in india you know the fact i mean the cfo surely is responsible to the board right so yeah. so he's he's not just managing the financing side of things but he's also got to sell the credit of the company to the banker mm-hmm. right so so he's also a bit of a salesman and mm-hmm. right so so i realized then that every job is ultimately a sales job man like mm-hmm. it comes down to to that part of life right yeah. so so and and you know while we would talk talk about all these technical models projections and how do we do the road shows etc a lot of the stuff he was trying to get through was just his perspective on on the automobile business for instance right how he had seen the business evolve in the last 30 years and why he felt this car brand was fiat's biggest bet for india in the next 20 years yeah. and why he really thought we needed to be part of this deal right mm. so so i thought cfos would always talk technical uh, jargony stuff yeah. but here this guy was just talking about the company's history evolution of automobiles and and that was a huge learning curve for all of all the banks involved in the deal right and while city bank was leading the 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 deal you yeah. know you had to convince all these other banks as well to to come and given their share of capital and i wouldn't have got this exposure if not for city group right like Correct. it was just city bank and sort of built a stellar reputation for itself in that space of that capital yeah. markets that we would more more or less get all the lucrative deals yeah. so so our fees didn't matter it was just city bank to show up and <laughs> like we would more or less get that deal um so so, so that was you know surely a very uh, a heady exposure for a 22 year old yeah re- recently I, i read the news that city bank at least consumer retail is packing up and going yeah sad stuff man sad stuff <laughs> why, why clearly you seem to be there the big shots are in town no so city group in the retail space is very weak right hmm. retail space is about credit cards automobile auto loans personal loans etc Hmm. Sri Bank has just 45 branches in India. HDFC hmm. Bank is about 9,000 branches in India, right? So, so and retail banking is all about building the, those casa accounts, current accounts, savings accounts. Mm-hmm. Get enough customers to open bank account with you. Yeah. See, ultimately, 30% also transact. Yeah. 
yeah. you you make enormous amounts of money a city bank you know the, their entire approach was retail banking has been let's use the internet to to sort of just connect the yeah. affluent people right they've yeah. really not made sense for people who uh have an income of say 10000 or 15000 they correct. those customers go to larger banks like Got hdfc it. so city bank was very competitive in the other space the the Got banking the debt capital markets and the investment banking space Got it. so so sadly so, they're exiting but uh, so so you did that for 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 how many years two years at city a uh, year and eight months got it yeah. so so touching such yeah. two years and then you sort of yeah. felt this need that you know you wanted to do more in the impact investing space you went and joined this fund i think what i'm curious to know is you met through a city bank experience you met all of these great cfos and sort of you had that interesting realization that you know they are actually sales people um, and then when you were at at the investing space i'm sure you must have met you know tons of great entrepreneurs building stuff in the in the space like i'm very curious to know as an investor and having that mindset on what do you think like differentiated great like entrepreneurs in the impact investing space specifically from you know average entrepreneurs you were like then we're not very excited about those guys you know what i found very interesting early on in my journey in the impact investing space was guys who are heading banks right you know head of sales at banks who are holding you know holding large product portfolios they were leaving these banks to to join the startup bandwagon right so yeah. that was very interesting for me so someone who is you know at such a senior position in a large bank where he's making tons of money the only reason he would quit to do something of his own was was because he really really believed that his, yeah. his vision for the startup was correct right so so i met uh, you know guys like alok mittal i don't know whether you know him he was the ceo of uh, uh, indefi right which is a very popular digital lender in india uh, so those guys were were really knew the business because of their days in the banking world hmm. and they were just sort of applying all of what they built over 20 30 years of experience and putting that into perspective in their startup right and 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 i think when you bring that kind of experience it becomes kind of difficult not to taste success at some level because hmm. uh, you know your uh, reputation your brand has already got built out yeah right and and that's what i saw was pretty phenomenal and and that's when i realized that you know the startup ecosystem had really matured in a way right like mm. people were really willing to take these large outsized risks yeah because the venture capital system had come together and yeah. and and sort of people knew that if your business was worth the dollar yeah. you would be able to survive and and sort of uh make it a home run Got right it. and and so that was very interesting like people from very rich backgrounds leaving it all letting it all mm. go for that one vision right which was to yeah. you know sort of build their own company and most of them went on to start their own nbfcs mm-hmm. right their own fintech uh, startups etc yeah. so so i think uh, so that that interesting stayed with me got it so people who were like doing great banking jobs eventually leaving all of that behind leaving all their fat paycheck and picking up something was sort of a sign that these guys were really in it to win it and they really cared about the mission but correct and also the fact that you know startup taking a risk joining a startup was also becoming very a, a cool thing to do right mm, correct. It, it 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 was until then i always thought of someone joining a startup as possibly he is doing this because he's not got anything else to do right mm, and, and maybe that perception was very misplaced and that's something i realized way into my own startup journey yeah. that uh, you know people who who do startups don't do it just because they don't have a day job they do yeah. it because you know they've they really believe in something and they are ultimately creators in their own way right and that's Correct. possibly the only reason you want to do this yeah um, i want to so actually I, 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 I want to double click on that 
how many people do you think at least in your circles still believe that people who do a startup are people who don't have anything else to do do you think that's still a common belief based on no. whoever you know i think that that's been busted i think that myth's been busted and uh, uh i think uh, you know when did that get busted 2018 2017 2017 man like i think uh, 2016 2017 uh, where you know you had swiggy oyo and all these really unknown entities uh, you know sort of uh, becoming the next big places to work at right like mm. i remember even in 2015 ruben like my colleagues or people in the bank were leaving to join a flipkart or an oyo or a swiggy Yeah. or a housing.com if you remember housing.com Correct. right uh, it was a crazy yeah. uh, startup which like <laughs> went i mean i don't know what yeah. they are doing now but it was just like 10 or 15 people from the bank just went and joined housing.com mm. one fine day yeah. and so that really told you that the bank was a losing talent to these startups yeah uh, but you know you couldn't stop that momentum because startups had sort of Correct. found their heyday right so Correct. so so i think uh, that happened in 2016 2017 you essentially after so after investing you went to to work at at the uh, work at a startup and you were pretty you know an early employee you became an operator now that you have both these experiences um and i know a lot of people in investing go try to become operators so they can understand and how to be better investors and if you talk to an operator purely a normal co- like a common you know complaint they have is investors just don't get it like they're just so far away from the business they talk all of these numbers and like stuff in the air and they just don't get it So, given that it's in both sides now, what do you think investors? Do you think like when you were an investor, you just there were some things you just couldn't understand because you had never been an operator. Now that you've done like four years of working as an operator at a startup, yeah. So I think uh, you know in in the VC world, you know jargon is also frequently thrown around, right? Stuff yeah. like product market fit, uh, MVP, minimum yeah. viable product, and all of these things are often. spoken about and i basically interviewed entrepreneurs because my role at the fund was basically to scout for new opportunities correct so entrepreneurs would call me trying to explain their business model to me yeah. and i'm just 23 24 year old old guy and talking to his 45 year old entrepreneur who's basically telling me that he's left his fancy city bank job yeah. <laughs> to sort of to build a new company right and yeah. and uh, i was uh, you know Clueless. I was just throwing these terms around back at him. I was like, "Do you have product market fit? <laughs> uh, what is your average revenue per customer?" Right? These are things yeah. which, which really, you know, at that age, you know, you you feel like you're you're just invincible and you're just throwing these stuff back yeah, at you're him. You're talking the back end. I'm gonna call you out on your shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so I had that in the fair share of experience, right? And well, what happened? Did and, somebody uh, call you out? Did somebody call you out? Of course, of course. So my the, the CEO I ended up working with was. Yeah. Incidentally, also uh, a pitching to the fund for a fundraise. Mm-hmm. That's when I met him. Okay. Right, and he was, you know, coming after twenty years of leading credit cards for Citibank in India. Yeah. And I was asking him stuff like, uh, "Why do you think you'll do this for ten years? Yeah. Why do you, uh, where do you see this business in the next four or five years? Right. Yeah. Uh, what will when when will you break even? Right. Yeah. Tell me more about unit economics. When actually I had really not spent enough time myself studying all these things because. 
you know, as a first year analyst, you, you just joined the team and, you know, sort of, uh, you just told that these are questions you should be asking, right, yeah. to, to new entrepreneurs. Yeah. So I think that part of me, I still sort of cringe over that, you know, <laughs> that I, I sort of, you know, did not know these terms, but I was just sort of throwing it out because that was supposed to be done in that VC environment. Yeah. Whereas when I actually went and sort of joined him in that journey of, of building the startup, you know, it became so much more relevant, right? Like mm. having an initial beta product, MVP product, and then product market fit, and then scaling from there. Yeah. That journey made so much more sense when you're actually in the thick of things, running a company or running a business yeah. unit, uh, which I would just uh, not have experienced if I'd stayed in that investing role. And uh, yeah, and, and in some ways also I'd see, uh, I joined the startup uh, not saying I wanted to do it for the rest of my life, right? I was very sure. I told the entrepreneur that, hey, I'm going to spend two, three years, you know, give it my all. Let's see where this goes. Yeah. And uh, maybe at the end of it, I want to still go and do my MBA, right? And if it works out to be like, like the next big thing, maybe I won't need to do the MBA at all. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I was keeping my options open even then. Correct. But but yeah, as you said, you you become a good investor only when you're a, a good operator, Correct. right? And and today most of the VC world is full of guys from McKinsey and you know whatever Citigroup or whatever yeah. these these big fancy brands are yeah. who have zero iota of experience running a PNL, yeah. right? Right? And and they're from IIT Delhi or a Stephens or an SRCC and they just think they've made it already. Yeah. And I I personally still cringe over the fact that I ask these questions, man. And yeah. to people who are so senior without understanding their realities and why they were doing what they were doing, right? Yeah. Um, so, 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 if a first year analyst uh, who's just out of McKinsey or City is listening to this podcast and, you know, they have a conversation with the founder tomorrow, <laughs> what, what advice would you have for them? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, uh, you know, you realize a lot of this in hindsight. Like when I, when I was doing that, what I was doing, I still thought it was like yeah. I was actually doing good work and you, you have these realizations maybe when you step back and, and, and think over what, what your journey actually looked like. Yeah. But I still think, you know, breaking into investing is very aspirational for every, even a McKinsey person, they all want to get into the buy side and, mm-hmm. and you know, get into asset management, etc. So, so I think it, those are noble endeavors, but I think the context, you get much more out of the context when you actually be on the other side uh, mm-hmm. of the table and then coming into investing. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to be, uh, I mean, there's no intrinsic value you will bring as an investor. Mm. Like you're just going to keep yapping, you know, the jargon which is floating around. Yeah. There's no intrinsic value or pulse you will have on any business because you've not been on, in those do or die environments, right? When you're Correct. actually Correct. building a company. So now that you've been on the operator side, how do you think about investors? Like, I know there's always a match that. As, as companies, you're going to find right investors. So now that you're an operator, what do you look at, at, at an investor and how do you know who's bullshitting and who's not? No, so I have a very bittersweet feeling about investors now because we didn't get funded for the longest time, right? Mm. So, so I, I have that uh, uh, element of uh, uh, pain possibly that, you know, uh, you know, I was in the community and then these guys still didn't back our startup. Mm, uh, but, but I think... Uh, you know, um, the, 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 today when you, when you look at companies which are being backed, uh, you know, in the digital internet space, uh, there are companies which make zero revenue, spend crores uh, of money just for customer acquisition. And these are businesses which are today touted as the next uh, uh, unicorns, etc. 
yeah. uh, right so so i think uh, uh, surely i don't buy into that view i think uh, uh, startups well, need to be why profitable why do you think that happens like you've been in the investing space you've been in operating why do you think that happens so i think you know it's it's always a race to win win the market right you know in some markets are so large that winner takes it all yeah so the idea the investors sort of believe in is you come in you sort of kill competition on day one yeah uh, and and you sort of then find a way to monetize your customer over a period of time yeah. right and uh, but that's still a dicey strategy right i mean surely uh, some on some of these entrepreneurs are super smart i'm sure they'll find a way to monetize but what if that doesn't happen and yeah. it's surely a risky game to play but i think even in lending for instance the space i've been in these are winner take it all markets yeah. so if you are not funded if you continue to be bootstrapped for a significantly long period of time ultimately even if your company is not dead the market has already declared you to be dead mm. right and that's though that's my view of these very large markets where anyone can enter correct right? for instance in india like there's hundreds of apps today if you want a loan yeah right so these are markets which are there is no significant moat to enter the market yeah but once you enter you know to survive is going to be a huge challenge correct right and i think the the investor view is that in such large markets is better to back the winner got it and kill the competition on day one this is just my my random thoughts but yeah, yeah. this is what i've seen play out at least got it right so 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 you mentioned earlier that you guys didn't get funded uh, so you all didn't become the winner in the space and we'll come we will talk about that but you decided to leave investing and join this p2p lender uh, out of india which is doing consumer credit um talk to me why you decided to do that uh, was it because sure. you were tired of investing you felt you were not getting an impact or because you just thought you were faffing too much why why did you decide to join a startup <laughs> no party that but i also think uh, uh, at some level i i wanted uh, to sort of build something on my own without necessarily wearing the ceo's hat right without the risk of quote and quote being an entrepreneur right i'd been 3 4 years in financial services but i there was no unique identity i could pin on myself right there was some no uh, specific giveaway to the space which i could truly call my own and mm. i thought you know the, the business the p2p business at that point of time was poised for real growth uh, and i was very passionate about the end customers they were serving right the customers we were lending to ruben were primarily people who would earn 15000 to 25000 rupees a monthly salary and for them there was really no alternative in the market from a credit standpoint yeah. right and and uh, you know for a migrant worker or a school teacher in a very small school everyone yeah. needs credit at some point of time in their life whether they're getting yeah. married or there's a life event so i felt very closely about the customer segment and i liked the business model it was p2b right it was not like we were taking money from banks yeah. we were actually building uh, uh, the supply side of the business by taking money from retail investors mm-hmm. who would directly lend on our platform yeah. to these borrowers right so and i love the entrepreneur because he had come with 30 years of experience yeah right so i said man if he's so convinced about doing this at 45 or 48 uh, yeah. you know surely he's he's got plans and he's going to stay in this for the long time yeah right and but but i also went in thinking that startup world was very rosy i had a very utopian idea of startups yeah which was you know the idea that fancy office uh be my own boss yeah uh you know the the usual stuff the usually wrong reasons to start up right yeah right and those were preeminent in my mind even then mm-hmm. and i also to be honest i wanted it to be my story for the mba 
Mm. Right? I want to go to a business school and then tell them, hey, I've been here, done that. Correct. Two years, we've done two rounds of, raised two rounds of capital, Correct. 100 employees, right? Living the high life. Correct. So those are all the wrong reasons, uh, hindsight to join the company. Yeah. But uh, that is why I took the plunge. And in some ways, the risks were also known risks, right? I knew that it could fail. Yeah. But if I if it failed, I knew I could still somehow do the MBA. Yeah. So so I I I, I took it with a pinch of salt, and uh, there's also but then I was very convinced that the entrepreneur was going to sort of stay in it for the long term. Got so it. so he would I I was sure that he would even if the market didn't accept us initially, we would sort of be a tortoise and stay in the market Correct. as opposed to just shutting shop one day and and leaving. Right. So those were some of the broad uh, you know guidelines or pointers which sort of led me into yeah. the journey. Got it. That's interesting. Uh, in, in your note, yeah. you mentioned that you entered into the startup with this rosy picture, uh, but turns out you realize that, you know, joining a startup isn't for the faint hearted. Day zero was absolutely crazy. And four years later, you hit a point where you, you'd burnt out. So talk to me about uh, I, like that entire journey. Like what was day one look like? You, you joined this, you're like sure. this fresh off the press, you know, you've done financial services, you've done investing, you've met all these you know, you know what ARPU is, you know what CAC is, and you walk to the startup. <laughs> what happens in day zero? Yeah, so um, so I was moving from Bangalore to Chennai instantly because the company was setting up shop there. Yeah. Right. And I still remember the first day of work, and my parents had come down from Coimbatore to Chennai to set me up in Chennai because mm-hmm. yeah. Chennai was still a new city. Right. Though I'm yeah. familiar and all, like Chennai, I've never lived in Chennai before. So yeah. they were there, and uh, we were searching for the office on the street. Right. Like like we know the address but we can't see a board or there's nothing yeah. right so so i step in and my parents are right behind me and they they take me to the first floor and uh, you know the, the the one of the co-founders had taken up one quarter of his full office had res- been reserved for the startup right so basically mm-hmm. three or four kiosks and that was it it was just four kiosks with three people sitting in front of them with laptops one being the ceo and uh, and me introducing my mom and my dad to the team, yeah. right? And they are like, this guy's taken us to the Citibank office. He's taken us to the to the venture capital fund office. Uh, this is completely different, right? And yeah. and it was a huge shock for them, right? Mm. And uh, you know, and and thankfully, you know, the day I went back uh, home from that that uh, day one, you know, I, I told them that you know very honestly that you know I I was going to spend two and a half three years here. Yeah. You know, the fact that this is day one doesn't mean there's going to be like this forever. Correct. I told them that we're going to move to a better office, etc. And I promised them that I do the MBA. Yeah. Right? For them, they were like, you tell us you do the MBA and do all of this shit. <laughs> we don't care. You do whatever you want. You come home. You don't come home. We don't care. Yeah. But just promise us you do that. So I, I told them that that is definitely going to happen. Come what yeah. may. Yeah. Right? So, so day one was just that, man. And my CEO coming and telling me that we had uh, 200 borrowers who had been identified for giving loans out to, mm-hmm. and we didn't have any single investor on the board on the on the platform to give the money. Correct. Right. So, so I'm assuming that by now he's figured out his his game plan. He's got some money. He's lined up a few clients who want to lend on our platform. Yeah. And and I'm just thinking I'll I'll go in and you know churn things up over yeah. time and sort of build it up. And day one was basically like. You know, uh, if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. you know they they're coming into the beaches of Normandy, right? The Allied troops are yeah. having a battle with the Germans, yeah. and I was like the frontline guy out there, right? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, my CEO basically told me that you know we need to get this money to give these borrowers loans by the end of three or four days, 
and I was just given a database of HNIs in Chennai, high net worth individuals yeah. in Chennai, who I should be calling up for mm. soliciting investment. Yeah. Right. And and that was crazy. Like I was basically doing cold calling for the first even first three months. Mm. Right. Just sort of trying to understand how to position this product because at some ways, you know, this has become sort of an asset class. P2P is not just some random thing people are Correct. doing. It's also become an asset class. So I had to position it properly and I was basically like, you know, you know, Leo in Wolf of Wall Street, right? Mm. Like like, you know, sort of randomly you know, going out of the sales script and talking to people yeah. who were not interested in possibly even having that conversation with me. So, so that was how it sort of started. Yeah. Uh, eventually, before I was given better things to do. Yeah. But but that was very humbling, Ruben, because I had never picked up a phone and spoken to someone who was not interested in speaking to. Mm. Right? Like in Citibank, when you know you call, people answer. Whether yeah. you're 22 year old or a 35 year old, no one gives a shit. The brand yeah. does the talking. Yeah. Here I was stripped of all my glory. I was mm. just another random person who was trying to sell something over the phone. Yeah. And uh, from building the first sales script to hiring my first two, three tele callers who would speak yeah. to these investors, man, that was, that was uh, a crazy ride the first few days. Yeah. And all of this was against very tight deadlines because Correct. our borrowers were waiting for cash. Yeah. And if we couldn't meet them, even our first few early adopters would vanish. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, so, that, that's crazy. Yeah. I absolutely know the yeah. feeling when you say I'm going to pick up the phone and like convince people. I'm curious to know, what, what do you think that those three months taught you? The fact that, you know, you know, uh, I was going out of my comfort zone by that much, right? Mm. I never thought I'd be willing to go out of my comfort zone by that much, yeah. right? I would possibly at some stage, I would have, I thought I would just call it quits and tell them that, hey, give me better work to do. Yeah. I know this is a startup and all, but yeah. don't make me talk to random strangers over, yeah. over the phone. Yeah. But but I but I really re- realized that 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 part of me existed, right? That I could possibly yeah. you know do cold selling also, right? Yeah. Also taught me wh- about why people say no to you, right? Why do they say no to you? Yeah. So so when I was doing these calls, like I I really did not understand the customers' requirement. I just thought these were a bunch of rich people in Chennai who were possibly willing to put a lakh or two in this product, and I'd have my first few deals closed, right? Yeah. And I I realized over a period of time that basically no one ever invests in anything over a phone call, mm. right? So you had to go out and build these relationships with these early adopters, yeah. right? So, so over time, I realized that, you know, while you can have a great sales pitch on the phone, uh, you know, Chennai also is a very conservative market that way people like these in-person relationships, right? So yeah. they don't believe in virtual stuff. So I realized that happened. And also a lot about how I, I was positioning the the product itself right so i was saying why don't you come and lend on our platform mm. right in the moment people heard the word lend mm. that always struck a very negative connotation in their head because in india you you generally don't ask people to lend right you ask mm. people to invest mm. right and and so we realized that it's not about lending here we've got to position this as an investment product mm. right you got to talk about irr and all those fancy banker things right which mm-hmm. i was so people actually take me seriously. Yeah. So, so, so all of this happened and out of hundred calls I would do 50 would not even pick up and 30 would say, uh, your company's name sounds like a biscuit company. So we don't know what, we don't want to invest in a biscuit company because the yeah. company's name was Monexo yeah. and they thought it was Monaco, right? Monaco was being <laughs> the biscuit company. Yeah. And 20 people would actually have a conversation with me and five would set up meetings and yeah. I would close one or two deals 
at the end of the month. So very slow pace initially, but in, in terms of output, but in terms of the things I was doing, like it was just setting up processes, setting up yeah. our first sales deck, etc., was was taking time, right, to to yeah. build out. And um, so yeah, you know, day zero That's, is always special, man. Like, yeah, um, especially in a bootstrapped company. Correct. So so that happened in day day zero. You sort of went away from this fancy banker investor to literally, you know, in the trenches um, and and doing these cold calls. Um, you were at it for about four years, and at some point, you know, as you mentioned, the company did not sort of, you know, reach this vision of becoming, you know, billion-dollar company like everybody imagines. Well, you know, everybody knows the facts when it starts that nine out of ten companies fail, but yet we thought of feel, feel, you know, we are going to be the one which succeeds, but that didn't happen. Um, and what point, sort of, did you realize that this is probably not going to be the big billion-dollar unicorn I had imagined this uh, to be? Yeah. So I think I think the first one year it was just the adrenaline which was doing most of the job yeah. and just keeping me excited, waking up every day and going to job, going to work, thinking that we were still going to make it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know the fundamentally different, difficult part of this business of P2P is we're building two companies within one company, mm-hmm. right? Technically, because you've got to build a supply yeah. which is people lending, and you also got to build the demand which is you know, the, the very difficult problem to solve for, Correct. especially when you're on a bootstra- bootstrapped shoestring budget, right? Yeah. So I think that first one year took out a lot of my energy, right? I was traveling cities as well because, you know, uh, we would go to these rich Marwadis and Shahs in Gujarat and mm. do roadshows for them saying, hey, you know, you're only earning only 6% in your bank deposits. Why don't you come and put money and earn 13%? So, mm-hmm. so a lot of that was taking a toll on me mentally and I was giving it my all. Like yeah. I was doing 120%, mm-hmm. right? Even I was working harder than even my Citibank days. Mm-hmm. Like even though the outcome was uncertain, I did not know this was going to work or not. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think about year, year and a half into the journey, we constantly had this pattern of missing numbers, right? We were not able to hit our target numbers. And yeah. while we had commitments from soft commitments from venture capital investors who liked the P2P idea, it was against us achieving those numbers. Yeah. Right. And uh, we were falling off that by a lot. Right. And it was about 60, 70% short. Why do you think that happened? Were, were it like aggressively high numbers or y'all were just not executing well? No, I think uh, we, surely the numbers were challenging because of the nascent stage of the business. And, mm. you know, the first year was essentially about stabilizing supply for us because, you know, we were an unknown entity, right? Yeah. And the market was unregulated. People just did not invest in these products. So while we had a lot of demand on the borrowing side, yeah. which is evident in a country like India, you always find right. enough borrowers. The fact that we were not able to stabilize supply as fast meant that each borrower had to wait for 10, 15 days to even get a lack of rupees. Hmm. So that network effect, you know, which people talk about in a marketplace, right? Never played out for us. Got so it. we were constantly spending a lot of new money acquiring customers and most of it was digital acquisition. Yeah. Whereas the word of mouth trigger never sort of played out. Mm. for the longest part of time. And the second year was another unique problem uh, because you know, the supply had stabilized. We'd got yeah. some, uh, done some recently good jobs in convincing a lot of people to put money and we'd gone and signed up these large wealth managers who said, we'll give this product to even our clients mm-hmm. who are investors. So that, that worked out. But that was when 2018 happened and a lot of VCs decided to back just pure play fintechs, right? Aggregator models. Mm. So you had these other companies in the market which were raising tons of money, millions yeah. of dollars. 
and so they were able to acquire borrowers at a fraction of the cost which we were able to acquire mm-hmm. right and and so we, we were at a fundamental cost disadvantage mm-hmm. and and so that killed the borrower side of the business Got fairly it. quickly and we were for a long time dependent on the digital acquisition thing right we would just yeah. put these ads up and people would apply etc so 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 that didn't uh, work out so both sides you know didn't happen or grow in tandem right so it, it yeah. these were staggered phases of growth and that sort of doesn't work if you're a marketplace right you have to build both in parallel uh, so we we realized i think at the year year and a half i think we had a serious conversation with a couple of venture capital investors who uh, said you know they were going to support us and they backed off right they mm. said we have many other interesting or easier to execute business models yeah. we like your company we like your team etc but scaling this up is going to take forever got it right got and it. by that time i had almost spent as i said uh, nearly 2 years in the journey yeah and uh, i had this moment where my ceo shoulders itself started dropping right like mm. he also sort of felt that you know maybe we this business model is not the right one for this market yeah and that was very difficult for me to take because he came and sort of asked me these questions on what do you think went wrong and yeah right and I, at that moment i'm still hoping for a miracle right i'm yeah. still saying that okay some day you know we're going to get some money and yeah. we're going to get that employee count going and all of that stuff but just didn't happen right and yeah. uh, by the time a lot of water had flown under the bridge we'd lost a co-founder all that happens when you keep failing right and Correct. and for me that was the biggest reality check right I, you know going in with this, this this very idealistic view of of success yeah and just startups are really hard man like they are hard you don't want to do it uh if you really don't want if you really i mean unless you really want to do it you probably better off staying in a regular job yeah uh but yeah it also gives you the you know those highs and the lows are are so volatile that uh, i was also losing it you know my my personal health was also going for a toss i was not spending time with my family my friends i basically lived in in a silo for 3 years during the mm-hmm. startup journey right you ask any college classmate they wouldn't remember me possibly right yeah. so so thank you for bringing me back from the dead <laughs> <laughs> that that's a great way to put it um what was yeah. the highest high like i know startup journeys are, and everybody talks about oh my god so sad all of that but i know like for me personally when i was doing nevasa there was some there were some days where you're like man like we like you know yeah. they call the trillion energy like we are going to do this like do you remember some of those highs yeah yeah so um, i remember uh, we closed a million dollar commitment from a very large wealth manager mm-hmm. and we'd been pursuing him for about 2 3 months yeah and uh, that was remarkable for a company which was just like 3 or 4 months into into uh, being live yeah and when when you saw that kind of large commitment of million dollars about 8 crores yeah uh, and that basically gave us some runway to be able to do this lending yeah in uh, the sort of that sort of reiterated the fact that you know this is why you do startups for right these moments yeah. of 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 exhilarating highs yeah. and uh, i also remember another occasion where uh, uh, rbi called us rbi mm. called us in and said hey you guys seem to have be, a lot of money seems to be running through your bank account right yeah so so what what business is this yeah. and why are you taking money from people <laughs> and stuff like that and so i had to go along with my ceo to the rbi deputy governor and explain mm. to him what p2p lending is right yeah. and uh, and uh, and that sort of uh, led rbi eventually to regulating us and recognizing us as an nbfc 
because wow. until that point we were unregulated mm. right so so we were presenting to very senior folks from rbi yeah. and stuff like that and which that and p2p lending maybe because of our early efforts is today actually a legitimate business model in india yeah. right because rbi is now regulated the space etc so so those were uh, real highs and also the people right i remember uh, the first or two hires i have made yeah i had never hired anyone before right like yeah. like in stephens you know in societies we would just have friends etc who were part <laughs> of clubs but first time I, i was actually asking someone a salary and like negotiating and getting that person to work with me yeah so those are experiences you never have in a regular day job yeah so your research point you know you you said your you saw your founders sort of shoulders dropping i know that that's super hard um what was sort of the final nail in the coffin when when did you realize that you want to leave or did the company shut down what happened so that's the interesting part right for the longest time we were never a success neither were we a complete crash and burn kind of failure uh-huh. right so uh, i started in day 0 we had just uh, done zero lending in 2017 and by the time i left in 2021 we had touched about 25000 customers who had taken loans from us wow we had built a lending book of around 120 crores uh-huh. which means 120 crores of people's money was actually invested mm-hmm. in our platform right mm-hmm. so so it was that middle level feeling right where yeah. you've made the spark but it's never gone on to be that ripple effect which yeah. you wanted it to be yeah so so i think uh, uh two and a half years into uh, the startup uh, i had a very honest conversation with the ceo right i told him hey i've been in the front seat i've been doing whatever was asked of me uh and and you know the, the the sad part was i was giving it my all but i was just not seeing the company becoming a success yeah right? and that's why startups are so unique right like if i went to a, a normal job if i was very good at what i did i would get promoted and correct and all of that and with here you know i just felt like a loser right i yeah. honestly felt like a loser and i told them that i felt that way and and i also taken a steep pay cut incidentally to join the company of course right so so from a financial perspective as well i was not too confident of where i was at that point of time mm. because you know i'd seen all these these fancy places and then i really believed in the mission so i said let me take a pay cut and then eventually it'll all work out for the better that was the yeah. idea going in yeah so i said you know I've, i've just been doing random things and you know surely learned a bit that process but and, and i told him you know i have two options now either i go do my mba the other option was to just stay along for maybe another year yeah. or so to possibly look at parts of the business i really liked mm. right and really sort of enjoyed doing and uh, the answer was i could have obviously left that day to go to business school but i just felt that i had no unique story to tell right it was mm. just that i built you know some sort of business unit from scratch that was all yeah. that but I, i had no specific experiences to share or which yeah. would make business school not very relevant for me yeah. i felt right so so i said uh, i took a month sabbatical i just came back home and mm-hmm. uh, you know sort of figured told my boss that you know now we are already at a stage where speed of execution is not going to matter because yeah. you know, we we going to go, grow at a very small uh, pace and so i went back and started doing uh, very focus on focus focusing on very unique parts of the business i really liked like for mm. instance i uh, ended up speaking a lot with our borrowers who had taken loans from us trying to understand why they had come to us mm-hmm. what were their aspirations of coming to monixo right yeah. as opposed to going to any other bank and and that gave me a very interesting learning uh, ruben which uh, you know you may think of yourself as a failure mm-hmm. because you had all these rosy visions of 
success which yeah. will materialize but your customers are not thinking of you like that mm. your borrower is basically telling was telling me that hey you were the first guy man who trusted me and gave me a loan despite my credit score not being as good mm. i don't care whether you're number 1 in the market or number 10 you've made a difference in my life come what may yeah right so i think that sort of you know sort of enabled me to stay in the journey for about a year year and a half yeah. after where i was doing you know interesting stuff like uh, we launched a product a loan product product for small merchants mm. who were operating kirana stores uh, right we were able to somehow capture the the data the sales data in the kirana store and use that as a way to give them a loan yeah. right we would build an algorithm and do that so we did that we went and worked with a lot of schools and hospitals to give patients uh, zero interest mm-hmm. loans mm-hmm. right so uh, people who cannot afford to pay school fees up front and that yeah. was typically our customer segment right yeah. we would go and partner with the school saying we'll give the parent a zero interest loan mm-hmm. and we take a small discount from the school so those were interesting lending models i i always wanted to execute and i just went and did that Got right it. for about uh 6 to 8 months after and then i think uh, you know the company still continues to operate yeah. we have about 40 45 employees still so yeah. i joined as employee number 3 or 4 and it's not like we've shut down or something uh, yeah. and i hope they do well right yeah. and 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 a lot of startups also catch up maybe later right like yeah. especially if you made it to the first 5 years there are still chances that the company will will end up doing well so Correct. so i really hope that happens but i at, at the end of 3 and 1/2 years i said 3 and 1/2 years i said i you know next step has to possibly go back to business school and uh, mm. going back into the market to another fintech venture at that point didn't make sense because a no one knew my startup that well mm. right uh, so you know it was not like i could just get these uh, op- break open these these doors and so yeah. interview with these companies secondly from a from a you know even from a financial perspective like you know it didn't make sense to immediately jump in at at such a low salary to a, mm. to a new venture because the market is not going to value at all right because you're not coming with a success story so i said business school is you know is the best starting point and mm. um, decided to do it after about 3 and 1/2 years of uh, startup experience got it you i think one thing was interesting is that you mentioned sort of business school and like you know you had this promise to your parents that you would do business school you like at, at the start you decided that you would join a startup you have a good story for business school I'm just curious to know, like I think now, like it makes quite, like a sense why you're going to business school. But right back at the start, like even when you were at at City, like why was it so important for you to go to business school? So I think uh, you know I look at MBA as surely uh, a declining trend, right? So I don't mm. personally think the MBA is 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 your golden ticket to success. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it gives you some sort of template in life, mm. right? Where where you sort of uh, I basically look at it as a security deposit, which will possibly help me to take greater risks in life later on, mm-hmm. right? So, so I, I, you know, even if I had to after the MBA go and do another crazy journey like this, yeah, I still know that I won't crash and burn, and I'll still be all right. I'd still mm-hmm. be able to come back and and tout my MBA credentials, and yeah. I think that's how I see it, as opposed to just doing it for the sake of doing it and just for adding that additional degree to your to your resume right so right. so i think mba is a surely a declining brand and it's mm. it's fairly evident that you know today uh, careers like investment banking and consulting which are a quote and quote why people go to mbas yeah. for aren't really the norm right i mean look at us we are you know we we've, we've been part of startup journeys which we never thought we would and those industries yeah. are generally declining and i think this new parallel economy which is the startup space is is what is sort of going to be the future 
and mm. you need very different skills there right i mean you can't just be good at excel and powerpoint and say i know what it takes to run a startup because yeah. startups just so much more which goes into into building yeah. a company so um, so i so i i'm doing it primarily because yeah i a, i promised my parents that i do it yeah. uh, and also because uh, uh, trying to make sense of all the unstructured learning i had right going back to classroom will sort of be a good sounding board to sort of put all of that four years into perspective because yeah. i'm still just about one month away i mean one month uh, from when i finished off with the startup right so uh-huh. so you know need that one year of, of just spending time in a different environment to sort of put everything into perspective because the last four years honestly seemed like a blur yeah right? it seems to have run by so fast yeah um so so those are some of my motivations behind going to business school and also you know just building a network also makes sense a mm-hmm. network is surely not the right word maybe meaningful connections etc is what yeah. i should be looking to do and just uh, you know uh, maybe uh, live the college life all over again i mean we all had a fantastic undergrad uh, in stephen right and fond yeah. memories and sort of one last chance to live that up before yeah. i turn 30 <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, the last decade has been so so fascinating like i would never imagine like you kevin from what i remember from college going to like this high flying banking life like talking to cfos working at a startup like i usually ask most people this question but like what are like some shifts in beliefs you've had over these last 10 years and you mentioned some you know through the conversation but like what do you think are the biggest shifts in belief you've had over this last decade sure so i think uh, one was you know possibly that you know today everyone talks about the fact that you need to stretch yourself out of your comfort zone and all mm-hmm. of that uh, and after having gone through the startup ride and also having a gone through the traditional financial services route i honestly feel that some of my best work some of my best moments have come when i've been in my comfort zone right mm-hmm. maybe it's counterintuitive or paradoxical but some of my best moments of professional career uh, have been when i've been genuinely interested in what i've been doing mm-hmm. and uh, you know i don't think startup life should be about just taking one challenge head on after the other and constantly be about putting yourself out of that comfort zone uh, and and it it can actually you can be in the comfort zone and still do meaningful work mm-hmm. right as, as as long as you are aligned to the larger mission so i think uh, uh, i've realized that comfort zone and going out of it is often touted as you know your level of a growth mm-hmm. but i don't think that needs to be the case typically yeah and the second is you know i think uh, you know I, i as i said i've lived in a silo for the last 4 years and um, you know, i'm ex- i mean you know I, i've sort of underestimated how far i've lost touch with a lot of people who mattered in life right mm-hmm. and and uh, and you know you can be this phenomenal high flying success but if you lose relationships you know some of them become irreversible at mm. some point right so so i think uh, celebrate the small moments as much as you celebrate those those high moments because uh, otherwise the the highs and the lows will be very difficult to 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 live with because if you don't celebrate the small moments and you suddenly have a tremendous low mm. you're going to really be destroyed or again yeah. if you have a very uh, un, uh, disproportional high then again yeah. that's going to Uh, take you in the wrong route so so i think celebrate the small moments as much as you celebrate the large ones the bigger ones because all of that matters in the larger context that's nice do you have a piece of advice for 19 year old kevin um no i think uh, you know uh, broadly uh, the idea was uh, you know try to have some sort of plan i, I guess because 
as you said right like i was very different in college and yeah. uh, professional career is just uh, you know seen me take very different shades so i think uh, uh, i remember i was listening to david's podcast podcast and saying he was saying that I, he was sort of accumulating personalities a bit of everyone's traits best qualities etc so i was yeah. also kind of similar so i think uh, it helps to sort of uh, uh, have a broad interest uh, when you're in college as opposed to being a jack of all trades and mm. and doing whatever comes uh, uh, along the way and then uh, that way you sort of uh, also make much more meaningful connections because for the longest part in college i was i was just making friends also because i just had to make friends right like mm. it was just you know you you had to be social and all of that so was putting on that front but i realized that all that none of that matters the people who today are in start touch with me are people i've really made meaningful connections with mm. so so you know just uh, uh have a large north pole to chase and and broadly stick to it and uh, instead of uh sort of mixing the formula too much yeah do do you have a do you have a large north pole today or do you have a clear answer on what your north pole is no i think uh, the large north pole is you know sort of do meaningful work in fintech right and and i am very sure that i'm going to stay in this industry uh, for quite some time uh, uh and maybe i won't start my own business or something at least in the next 4 5 years but but ultimately the vision is to do something which is which is a uh, uh, larger scale and impact and and which can actually uh, impact people in a positive way so i think uh, that's where the large north pole is to stay in the industry and and see how uh, this fintech uh, wagon can take me Mm-hmm. um and then also i think you know just uh, as i said uh, sort of make uh, reconnect with a lot of people uh, who i've lost touch with and uh, uh, sort of not make that mistake again because because sometimes you 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 can't go back on uh, on certain things and um, so enjoy the ride and have a large north pole to choose yeah after your startup experience do you think you're going to go back to work at a startup <laughs> <laughs> like a repeat offender <laughs> or 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 just yeah. an ad, or just an addict going back for some more sure i think you know i i i i uh, i think i find it very difficult man now to go and work in a city bank like uh, environment because you i've been working with small teams and you know, leading small teams for a long time now and and once you are in a startup it's very difficult to suddenly go in and work in a even a flipkart or a paytm because those companies call themselves startups but they're not startups right yeah. I mean, they're they're probably have a 100 vice presidents so <laughs> so i think it becomes difficult to do that and uh, uh but I, i think i'd want to do something in a startup which is more stable where i don't have to build the boat from scratch mm-hmm. right i want to be in a startup which is already possibly in the high seas and sort of cruising mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. and i can i can sort of take the company from a 10 to 100 to 1000 as opposed to taking it from 0 to 10 because mm-hmm. that 0 to 10 journey is where things get super chaotic yeah right and uh, i think uh, shorty startups will uh, feature but uh, not bootstrapped super <laughs> early stage ones possibly <laughs> got it under the my own company yeah well never say never <laughs> you never know how things pan out <laughs> i i know we are we are yeah. we cross the hour uh, i got a piece of feedback from recently wherein the the, the speaker um, in fact it was david said that uh, i shouldn't cap it at the hour some conversation should just go on So this is what I'm trying. I know I, I <laughs> we, we did not stop at the hour. So it didn't feel like an hour, right? I think 
it went by quite fast yeah just like thanks the last to you being years. a good conversationalist <laughs> just like the last 3 years <laughs> um, all all a blur <laughs> let's see how this how this other episode does on the analytics uh, but um um what i have asked all all my guests if they have a question for me and and even like david was saying that he's probably you know heard all <laughs> me answer everything under the sun um uh, but uh, mm-hmm. kevin what what question do you have for me no i think uh, you know we've been in fairly uh, similar uh, journeys uh, ruben so i was just wondering yeah. uh how well, what was that that the biggest low point in your startup journey uh, at navasa and uh, uh what were some of your learnings from that experience so there were there were two kinds of lows right i think one when things were not going well um like you know a customer sort of a deal went through a customer was being just irrational and um like they were just being hard and all of that stuff you know we couldn't raise capital i think those were like i would say a small ups and downs and over time you get you get used to them but i think the lowest low is when we knew that the company was not going to work out um and you knew this pretty early on um and um my biggest takeaway is um from that entire experience and what i've applied sort of you know my last one year also is rip the bandaid like there is no point um you know dilly dallying and trying to make it work yeah. um you know sometimes that does work but most times like you know deep down that it's done and you shouldn't be trying to make it work like it's like saving a sinking ship like you know you'll maybe yeah. procrastinate it and maybe you'll you'll take it like maybe one year more two years more but you know just rip the bandaid and uh, i think that just requires immense amount of courage it requires immense amount of like just awareness because you know like and i think over time maybe it's like it's it's been like maybe a month since you've left and i'd be curious to maybe you know chat again in like a year and, and see and, and i i think the perspective you will have over the last you know your experience will be dynamically different um just because you would have time to reflect and really put into perspective but what i have realized is that like for us you know one when we were doing nivasa it was we, we failed right we failed uh, at the company we didn't really think uh, it didn't really sort of get to where we had hoped to but the way i look at it now is that was absolutely not a failure we failed to achieve the goals we had set out for ourselves and the bigger question was were those goals even realistic um and the answer was that no they were pretty unrealistic goals and therefore we failed to reach them but from a experience point of view i don't see that as a failure at all um and you know what enabled me to do a pretty good job at at my previous company was because of that experience so i think the quicker you rip the bandaid off sure. the quicker you sort of get on with stuff the quicker you sort of start you know you know implementing those those things you've learned because you have learned a ton you just need a new place to apply those learnings um and then you know at that company that context is probably not the best place to do it um so so yeah i think that was my lowest sure. like for firstly was on my lowest point and the the, the the takeaway was just you know don't delay the the inevitable or don't delay the inevitable. just do it like there's too much of time for you to be wasting doing random things like people are wondering yeah. will i get a job who will hire me like the biggest question in my mind was you know what would i tell a future employer like, what did i do with the last you know, two and a half years yeah. i was a real estate agent um, but <laughs> no, no nobody cares like people like value this kind of experiences so the quicker you just get on with it and stop mulling in the in the in the you know in the abyss the aftermath of failure i think um so that's yeah, that, that that's what what i would say my lowest takeaway was sure sure interesting perspective awesome cool i think that wraps us up uh kevin thanks a ton for doing this man it has been so so good to speak to you and just sort of looking at your experience in the financial services space i've sort of i think in the last two and a half years spent a lot of time in fs 
and you know very very similar i think my motivation of continuing to be in the space is the way it can create an impact i really like the phrase you use wherein you know capital can create impact and and at scale um and uh, yeah i think for you it it seems it it's it's not obvious but i think like for me it's quite clear why you've done the things you've done and is yeah, it- in retrospect it is possibly but uh- <laughs> but yeah, when I was actually doing it, uh, yeah. going through the process, it was possibly not as evident yeah. or obvious. Great talking to you, man. And I mean, I, I hope you continue doing this podcast. And uh, I, 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 as I said, you know, I, I'd love to listen to perspectives of so many of my other classmates who you would possibly end up speaking to as well over uh, the course of this podcast. So, yeah. If there's one person you would like to listen to, who would that be? You should talk to uh, Atul. Atul mm. Kursinkar. Mm. Yeah. So he he's broadly in the same space, and uh, he's in I think uh, somewhere in Africa, investing in startups in that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Atul, you know, will give yeah. you very nice investor uh, tidbits as well. So <laughs> so, but if you want to like a very different conversation, maybe I'll WhatsApp you a couple of names, and we could uh, look at that. <laughs> Done. Yeah. I look forward to that. Awesome, Kevin. Yeah. Thanks a ton, man. And if people need to sort of keep in touch with you, assuming that you're back from the dead. How's the best way to connect with you? Yes, so I've started posting on my Instagram uh, like last four months, like I started in January. So I think okay. Instagram is a great place to reach me and uh, Facebook. Okay, awesome. Or Twitter. And please follow me on Twitter, guys. I, I just need, I have eight followers and I need more. So, <laughs> so please help me. <laughs> what's, your, what's your handle? Uh, KevinSam93. Okay, KevinSam93 at Twitter. And what's your Instagram? Uh, KevinJoe27. Kevin Joe 27. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can follow Kevin on Instagram and Twitter. And that is a wrap. And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the podcast. If you've been enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review. You can review us on Apple Podcast or any of your podcast players. If on Spotify, just go follow us. If you've enjoyed this ad-free experience, it's because we don't have any sponsors. But if you'd like to support the show, you can now buy us a coffee. You can find the link in the show notes below. I upload new episodes every Saturday, not Friday, and I'll see you in the next one.